At first, I don't really know what I'm looking at. I see a swirl of black and brown brush strokes on a giant canvas. But I keep looking and see that the strokes form a bunch of circles. Circles of all different sizes, all across the canvas, overwhelming each other. And the more I look at the circles, the more they remind me of human faces. Subdued, almost hidden in a crowd. The Sotheby's catalogue describes the epic painting, signed and dated 1960, oil on canvas. Further down on the catalogue, there's a quote from the painting's namesake, a line from a Ralph Waldo Emerson essay. The eye is the first circle, the horizon which it forms is the second, and throughout nature this primary figure is repeated without end. The Eye is the First Circle is a painting from Lee Krasner. I start with a blank and there's nothing more horrifying than a blank canvas. Because I don't have a thought or an idea or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And finally something stimulates you to move. It may be an obsession with a color. I was starting and make some brush strokes across the entire canvas, and then pretty soon some image will suggest itself to me. Last May, the painting was sold at Sotheby's auction for $11.6 million. The sale made Krasner one of the few women in the art world to command an eight-digit figure at auction. The painting holds all kinds of secrets. In December 1990, the Eye is the First Circle was stolen as a part of a series of art thefts across New York. To this day, no one has ever been charged in the thefts. Authorities don't even know if they were connected. It's a bizarre story, almost too strange to believe. The thief or thieves, no one knows who or how many were involved, stole four paintings in five days. All totaled, they were worth $8.3 million. My name is Mariam Khan. And I'm Isabella DeLeo. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This is season one, New York in the 90s. A renaissance of mysterious circumstances. The first theft happened on December 17, 1990, a Monday. The thief entered the Peter Bonnier Gallery in Chelsea, but the burglar didn't have eyes for anything being exhibited that day on West 23rd Street. The painting they wanted, an untitled Willem de Kooning work, wasn't actually hanging in the gallery. It was in Peter Bonnier's office. And that's where it was lifted. Two days later, two more paintings were stolen. Sometime between 11 in the morning and 6 that evening, the thief, or thieves, stole a painting by David Sally, called Sales Girls. Then, someone cut the eyes of the first circle out with its frame, all 18 feet of it, and took that too. 
Both paintings were owned by the Robert Miller Gallery. But they weren't at the gallery either. They were in a seventh floor loft, in a completely different building. Hanging in the gallery director's home, which doubled as a gallery showroom. The door was found open, and there were no signs of a forced entry. Two days later, on December 21st, a driver was transporting La Prenti by Haim Soutine to a gallery. But en route, the driver stopped the van to drop off something at another gallery one mile away. While the driver was inside, someone swooped in and stole both car and painting. 1990 was a big year for art theft. The gates at the Isabella Gardner Museum will stay locked while authorities search for clues in the daring weekend heist. Officials say that In March of 1990, thieves posed as police officers responding to a disturbance call at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. The museum's elaborate surveillance system made no difference. Museum officials today said it was the largest art heist in history. Thieves stole 13 works of art in a case that remains unsolved, including a Rembrandt self-portrait, a Manet painting, and five Degas drawings. It was the single largest private property theft in history. Today, empty frames hang where the stolen artworks once were, symbolically waiting for the works to be returned. That heist made the New York art thefts even more intriguing. When we first came across the story of the stolen Krasner painting, we were attracted by both the thrill of investigating a possible heist and what the story could reveal about women in the art world. Why is Krasner one of the few women to sell a painting for so much at auction? As we looked into the tale, we saw that a global retrospective of her work had just wrapped up. Was there sudden interest in Lee Krasner's work, driven by the Sotheby's sale? Did it have something to do with the thefts? Or was there a different factor that we were completely missing? A very warm welcome to you. Why don't we begin at the very beginning? Not at the very beginning. The beginning of your art. <laughs> the artist once known as Mrs. Pollock. Lee Krasner was born on October 27, 1908, in Brooklyn to a family of Russian-Jewish immigrants. She graduated from the Cooper Union School of Art and then again from the National Academy of Design in 1932. After graduating, she created murals for the Works Progress Administration. In 1937, she began studying under German artist Hans Hoffmann, where her work became increasingly influenced by Cubism and she developed a name for herself in the New York art world. I'm looking at a black and white picture of her from that period. She's sitting on a white bench that looks like it's made of doilies, the kind you might see at a fancy garden club. There's a cigarette in hand. Her lips are curled somewhere between a sneer and a smirk. Lee Krasner married Jackson Pollock, one of art history's most famous figures, in 1945. You've probably seen images of him in his studios, holding a bucket of paint in one hand and a brush in the other, drizzling paint onto a colorful, chaotic canvas. But their marriage was as turbulent as his paintings, their life together muddled by Pollock's infidelities and excessive drinking. For much of Krasner's career, she was seen as Mrs. Pollock. What was Pollock working on during that period? I don't know. I had my own problems. <laughs> That's the woman herself. From an interview with Barbara Lee Diamondstein, 
a historian and television producer in a 1978 television broadcast. The transition I went through from the academy to cubism, I once more had to go through from cubism to Pollock. You referred to some of these transitions in your life as swings of the pendulum. Why not? <laughs> I watched the interview six times to try and learn more about Krasner, but it seemed Diamondstein, the interviewer, only wanted to know about Pollock. And what did you learn from Pollock's work? I don't know. I liked what he was doing, and those would have been some of his early shows. I had enormous admiration. But I was pretty preoccupied with those solid gray masses in my studio. In pictures, that's how she's often portrayed. In her studio, surrounded by her larger-than-life canvases. Krasner didn't ascend to Pollock's level of success, at least not during her lifetime. They both worked in abstract expressionism, an art style that emerged after the Second World War. You know, the scale of what Krasner did, when I look at her late works, they're huge. And they make the viewer feel sort of like you're inside the work. We spoke with Peter Bonner, a New York-based contemporary painter and admirer of Krasner. And there's something wonderful about that, something very primitive about the way the services feel. And, you know, that makes you feel like a, makes you feel very human. Bonner says Krasner was often seen as someone under the shadow of her husband, Pollock. I think she's sort of being looked at uh, at the moment in a much different light. Like, I don't think she should be seen under the shadow of Pollock because I think she was doing something very different. And I think she was doing something, in a way, much more interesting. Artists like Willem de Kooning, Mark Rothko, plus Krasner and Pollock, painted in a way that looked spontaneous, with thick brush strokes that appeared to be just splattered into existence. Krasner's paintings were sometimes regarded by art critics as, quote-unquote, too womanly. I was first interested in speaking with Lee Krasner when I was looking into a topic for my doctoral dissertation. Gail Levin is an art historian and Krasner biographer. Pollock was dead, so I wrote to Lee Krasner and asked her for an interview. She agreed to meet me at the Marlboro Gallery. She spent a lot of energy promoting her husband's work, both during his lifetime and after his death. And to, to be quite blunt about it, if you had to make a living from art, it was easier to market a, male, a man's art than a woman's art. Why is that? Because the art world was very biased, and it's still not a level playing field. Krasner and Pollock's life together was portrayed in the movie Pollock, released 20 years ago. Marcia Gay Harden plays Krasner, and Ed Harris is cast as Pollock. That's the one I'm putting in the Graham show. That's a damn good picture. That works. You're a damn good woman painter. The film talks about how their marriage was troubled, to say the least. If you don't stop seeing her, I'm going to leave you. I love her. You don't. I am not going to give you a divorce. And she never did. Pollock died in a car crash in 1956. There were two other passengers in the car. Edith Metzger, a friend, and Ruth Kligman, Pollock's mistress. Kligman survived 
but both Metzger and Pollock were killed. He had been driving drunk. Four years after Pollock died, Lee Krasner painted The Eye is the First Circle. Krasner died nearly 30 years later, in 1984. She was 75. She's buried next to Pollock in Green River Cemetery in East Hampton, New York. start there what, what do you see with the eyes the first circle yeah um well it's a, a painting where there's a, a strong influence from from krasner's husband jackson pollock very evident i would say when they first got together she was uh a, 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 one of the kind of most most inventive and leading figures in the new york abstract painters circle that's michael leha a professor of art history at the University of Pennsylvania. And Hans Hoffman, one of her teachers, thought that, you know, she was one of his best pupils. But um, she kind of sacrificed her career to Pollock's after they got together. She you know, let him be the leader in the relationship in terms of promoting their art. Their art. After he died, she was kind of um, having to reconstruct her direction I think and um, and you can see that she's working through a lot of Pollock's visual language his ideas in that that picture a quote from Krasner's obituary in the New York Times reads for many years after Pollock's death in 1956 Miss Krasner lived in his shadow her work is less brash and explosive than his and she continued to be identified with his paintings of which she was a committed guardian. Chime and read, please hold for the buzzer. John Chime was the gallery director at the time of the thefts. He still lives in the loft where the Eyes of the First Circle and Sales Girls were stolen from. And we're doing a story on Lee Krasner. So we're hoping to see if maybe we could talk to um, John Chime. 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 (laughs) We're not interested in talking about that story. It's been covered pretty extensively. That's Stephen Turow, the director of the Chime and Reed Gallery. Okay, all right. Uh, Is there, like, do you know anyone who you think might be interested in talking about this? No, we don't want to talk about it at all. No, no, so, no. As in, do do you know of anyone else? Right. So we wouldn't refer you to uh, someone I else see. who would want to talk about it either. Okay. <laughs> we don't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I think John at this stage is a little bit like, you know, over it. Yeah. Yeah. We thought it was curious that Truo would tell us the story had been covered extensively. When we first came across the thefts, we actually didn't see much reporting on it at all. In January 1991. Charles W. Bagley of The Observer wrote about the then-ongoing investigation, and the International Foundation for Art Research did a report around that time. More recently, a writer named Nate Freeman published a piece in the online publication Artsy about the story back in August 2019. But aside from those reports, we didn't see much about the story online. In the 2019 Artsy article, Writer Nate Freeman did get a hold of Chime, but he didn't have much to say. Freeman writes, Reached via email while vacationing in Italy, 
Chime declined to speak at length about the ordeal, saying, I know little more about it than it being an unpleasant experience from 30 years ago. We were kind of shocked by our dismissal at the gallery, but really, it was just more encouragement to keep recording. We went to the New York Public Library's microfiche to read Charles W. Bagley's article in the New York Observer, titled, Tis the Season for New York Art Thieves, Paintings Worth Millions Are Stolen. His article began with an intriguing line. While shoppers may have done more looking than buying during the holiday season, the city's art thieves got in some last-minute Christmas shopping of their own. After describing the timeline of the thefts, Bagley wrote, Few people knew about the delivery of the painting, leading an insurance investigator to suspect someone was hired specifically to steal the soutine. Reading that was exciting. Bagley was suggesting that whoever took the painting from the van must have had insider knowledge about the driver's location that day. But what about the other paintings? The painting was called The Eye is the First Circle. Eye, first circle. And then there was another painting called Sales Girls. Sales Girl? That's Joseph P. Keenan, the detective who investigated the string of art thefts. He's retired now and we had to jog his memory. Okay. I don't remember these two, I'll be honest with you, off the top of my head at all. And what, what was the date of this? The date of this was December 19th, I believe, 1990. December. Okay, that's still, okay. Boy, this is really, I don't remember this either. The longer we spoke, the more Keenan remembered. I'm getting a, a little flashback right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's anything, but there was also, I believe, on that particular day or that week, a, a, a truck driver. Yes. On one of my cases. Yes. Here, Detective Keenan is talking about the theft of La Ponte, where someone stole the parked van with the painting inside. Oh my gosh, maybe I, I'm getting a little light over here. Okay. And I, yeah, I, I thought we tried to find out. We weren't looking for him, but we couldn't find him. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're talking about the same case, but I do remember there was some a lot of questions as to that individually. I think he was a truck driver. He, he picked up paintings and uh, got rid of them. It almost makes sense that he doesn't remember the Krasner case. Keenan investigated hundreds of art thefts in his career. He told me about one that was unrelated, in which an employee stole more than a dozen paintings. I do remember that I did make uh, an arrest on that particular case. And it was an employee that worked in the building. But when it went to the DA's office in New York and Manhattan, they couldn't get it out of the grand jury for some reason. The people in the art world usually has a lot of connections and everything in politics. And we thought we had a, a dead, a good case here. And for some reason, the grand jury never uh, indicted the guy who was a former employee in the company. Detective Keenan did eventually recover two of the stolen paintings. Sales Girls and The Eye is the First Circle. He got an anonymous tip. He found both wrapped in packing paper in the lobby of the Radio City apartment building on West 49th Street. 
The van that was transporting Laprinty was also found in Harlem a few days later, on December 26th. But the painting wasn't there. After the Krasner was found, it was returned to the Robert Miller Gallery. It stayed in the hands of Robert Miller's widow, Sarah Wittenborn Miller, until she consigned it to Sotheby's, where the painting was sold for the monumental $11.6 million. If the paintings are recovered, art thefts can, in a strange way, actually be beneficial for artworks. They can bring public awareness to a painting or actually drum up intrigue. Just this past year, there was a retrospective of Krasner's work. The Barbican Art Gallery in London curated Lee Krasner in Living Color. It traveled to museums like the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain. Uh, this year there's a retrospective on Krasner's work. Uh, why do you think there's that interest in her work uh, now? Well, I think, you know, there's interest in a lot of people who are who have been marginalized by the by the canon and the and the sexism of the canon. That's Michael Leha, the art historian from the University of Pennsylvania. There's been a, a lot of writing taking her work more seriously and thinking um, more creatively about what's original in it and what's interesting in it. So this year, I, I don't know why this year, it's, I think it's actually, it feels like a revival at this point of interest in Krasner that's been going on for so long. Would that contribute, do you think, to the, the market value of that painting? Well, anything that sells for $11 million um, is already, it's made a splash, and, and that sale in itself will make it stand out. If I remember correctly, it was sold to um, some prominent collectors who own the... Uh, the Glenstone Museum, right? Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's going to become a canonical work. So that too will contribute to its value in the sense that it'll be seen by a lot of people. It'll mm -hmm. probably be reproduced in a lot of scholarly writing. And all of that contributes to increasing monetary value. What was it about the painting that made it command so much at auction? And why does it still linger? Now, back to Peter Bonner. I mean, certainly her reputation has been building, building, building over a long period of time. Reached to Zenith in the 80s when she was alive, in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. So having a work stolen and now it got returned, but that just, that just adds to the mystique of, of her work, and it's, it's sort of a good thing for her, her, her reputation. Now you're sort of in the company of Rembrandt and Van Gogh and other artists. Police in the Netherlands are searching for a Vincent van Gogh painting. Investigators say thieves stole the artwork from the Singer Laren Museum east of Amsterdam early today. After smashing Even during coronavirus, thieves are still on the prowl. In March, Van Gogh was in the news again. Opportunistic thieves broke into the Singer Laren Museum in the Netherlands to steal Van Gogh's 1884 painting, The Parsonage Garden at Nuenen in Spring. The work, in its forlorn tones of dark green and grey, portrays a man walking alone in a garden, his face turning to look at the viewer. I think back to that Emerson quote. 
The eye is the first circle. The horizon which it forms is the second. And throughout nature, this primary figure is repeated without end. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Mariam Khan, and me, Isabella DeLeo. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Dale Maharaj is our co-professor. Keshav Pandya is our technical advisor. Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian Christina Williams, Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson, Peter Leonard from Gimlet Media, Rachel Quester from The Daily, Emily Martinez and David Bloom from Audible, Susan White from Garage Media, Nate DeMeo from The Memory Palace, Jonathan Hirsch from Neon Hum Media, Clint Schaff from the LA Times Studios, Madeline Barron and Samara Fremont from American Public Media in the Dark, and to Stuart Carl for his legal advice. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doran Zunez, and Camille Miller. Other music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. For more about this episode and shoe leather, go to our website, shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest shoe leather happenings, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at shoeleathercast.